And now it's time on Flame CCR to take a look behind the studio's green door to find out who is in today's chat room. Midnight, one more night without sleeping. Watching till the morning comes creeping. Green door, what's that secret you're keeping? And now, are you listening? You're listening to Flame Radio on 1521 Medium Wave and online. My name is John Cheek and I find myself in central London at the premises of Christian Concern Stroke Christian Legal Centre with the Chief Executive Officer, Andrea Williams. Andrea, am I right in thinking that you founded Christian Concern Christian Legal Centre? Yes, that's absolutely right. I've been here from the beginning. In many ways, I think that um, I will call this my life's work. But certainly it was not something I set out to start, but was something clearly that needed to be done. Because much to my surprise, I began to find, certainly in the 1990s, that Christians were beginning to lose their positions at work simply for being Christian. And that was very surprising to me, but it was a real phenomenon. And as a result of that... I knew that as a barrister, I would need to defend these people. And together with others who felt the same way, we began to resist these kinds of situations and began to bring cases or to defend those that were losing their jobs or getting into trouble with the police as a result of simply speaking about Jesus. Andrea, very quickly, can you give perhaps maybe two or three examples of the sort of situations where you have had to step in and speak out on behalf of such Christians? In what ways have they faced opposition for their Christian faith? Well, I think that some of the early cases that we found were where, for instance, Christian unions at uh, universities were being told that they had to apply the equality policy, which meant that the leadership would need to be open to everyone, whether they believed it as Christians or not. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to receive a place within the student union. So they were expelled from the student union. We resisted that in the case of Exeter, for instance, and were able to get the Christian union readmitted to the university. But it's that kind of pressure to dumb down your ethos, to not be distinctively Christian that we're beginning to see in many facets of public life. So that's one of the early cases. Another early case was the manifestation of faith through symbols. So the symbol that was under attack was the cross. So the British Airways worker, mm. Nadia Ouida, was told to remove her cross, that British Airways didn't want it to be visible. Similarly, Nurse Shirley Chaplin, where there was a change of uniform policy in the NHS Trust where she worked, and she was told that her cross should not be visible. The government at the time suggested that the cross was not a Christian symbol and um, it wasn't until we actually took those cases all the way to the European court that judges there said that the cross was a Christian symbol. And indeed, many government departments have the cross as part of their own symbol or their logo, like, for example, HMRC has a crown with a cross on top of it. And so how the government can reach that conclusion, I don't know. Andrea, if Christians are starting to face more opposition and more marginalisation, do you think there could be perhaps maybe some positive aspects of that? I'm thinking of how the church in China flourished under persecution. Do you think it's possible that the church in this country could be persecuted in the future to the same extent? And if so, could we even experience revival in the UK? Well, I think it would be truly wonderful to experience revival in this country. And I think that's what we need. I think as a country that's so rich in its heritage, so wonderfully blessed by the gospel, and we see that in the outworkings of so much that's good in our country, in our education systems, in our health systems, in our freedom that is here. It's why so many people want to come here. It seems very strange to me that we have as a nation let go of that and let go of that very quickly, certainly in the past 20 to 30 years. Strange that in this great nation where people are were prepared to die to give their life to take the gospel to, to other nations across the globe that now we would have a church that's so weakened that we're scared even of people being offensive on twitter against us or being offensive on facebook about some of the things that we say so there's a sense in which the church has no longer found her voice on the truth where truth is under attack in our nation 
And where is truth under attack in our nation at this time? Well, it's particularly with regard to God's purpose and God's pattern, which we see revealed in Genesis. There we see God's beautiful outworking of being made in the image of God, of his plan for male and female, of marriage within that plan. And we see these things very greatly attacked in our nation at this time. So, yes, we are seeing the speaking out of those things for God's purposes at this time under attack in our nation. You can find yourself getting into trouble as a result of it. Will Christians speak out on these issues? Well, I think sadly what we see is that many churches say very little on these things or think that in order to be seeker friendly, we should stay away from these issues for as long as possible. I don't think that really works. I think that we've got to be vocal and visible for Jesus Christ on these issues where people want to hear at this time. Andrew, one final question. If the church is facing increasing opposition in the United Kingdom, do you think that there is increasing opposition to the truth itself? Do you think truth itself is under attack? Well, there certainly is opposition to the truth of Jesus Christ. But sadly, we see in this country churches that call themselves churches, but actually don't speak the truth of Jesus Christ in the public space at this time. And that is disastrous and very, very sad indeed. And I think it actually confuses the people that don't know the truth, the truth of Jesus Christ. So I think there's a sense in which the true church needs to be more vocal and visible. And I think that gets confused because a lot of people claim to be Christian, but then claim to embrace all truth. There is only one truth, and it's found in Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by him. Andrea Williams, Chief Executive Officer of the Christian Legal Centre, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. of your glory holy heaven's only son one day I will see the fullness of your glory your love it reaches out even in the darkest hour holy heaven's only son one day I will see of your glory Holy Heaven's only Son One day I will see The fullness of your glory Your love it reaches out Even in the darkest hour You're listening to Flame Radio on 1521 Medium Wave and online. My name is John Cheek and I'm in the London headquarters of Christian Legal Centre here in the UK. And here with me is Roger Kiska of the the Legal Council of the Christian Legal Centre. And Roger, first of all, you're not from the UK originally. Can you talk a little bit about your background, your Canadian upbringing? And also, can you tell us a little bit about your Christian faith? Sure, absolutely. Well, first I'll say it's, it's a pleasure to be here on Flame Radio. As you mentioned, I was born in Canada. My parents are refugees from the former Czechoslovakia. They left in uh, 1968 when the, the tanks from Russia came in. So we grew up in a situation where we were made very aware of the evils of socialism and how that society destroyed freedom of expression, freedom of religion, and all these fundamental freedoms which we hold so dear. And I just grew up with an appreciation of that. And when I became old enough, I moved myself to the United States and became a member of the Michigan Bar, uh, studied law out there. And uh, with my Christian faith, decided that I would uh, practice before the European Court of Human Rights and specialize in, in religious freedom law at the European level. And so I have been back in my home country in Slovakia for the last 12 years, practicing before the, the various international courts, and decided that the United Kingdom is the hotspot for religious liberties law. It's 
It's ground zero for terrible anti-discrimination cases, all of the really horrible freedom of expression cases that are affecting Christian rights. And I felt if I wanted to be a proper Christian attorney who specializes in this area, I need to come to London. And that brought me here to Christian Legal Center. And I do believe that they are the premier firm doing this work. Roger, you mentioned leaving Bratislava and what was Czechoslovakia back in 1968 when your family escaped after probably, I think, the Czech uprising and escaped the Soviet troops. Relocating in Canada, was this the first time that your family first heard the gospel message, which I presume had been somewhat outlawed in communist Czechoslovakia back then? Well, interestingly, one of the, the bright spots of Czechoslovakia, one of the resistance was always the church. And so you find the leaders in the Velvet Revolution, with the exception of Vladislav Havel, were quite strong in their faith. And uh, the first job I had as a lawyer in Bratislava was for the former prime minister, who was a leader in the Velvet Revolution. Uh, he was a gentleman who, if he were to speak to the guards, it was on the condition that he be allowed to read scripture. So his wife would bring him a chapter at a time, and he would mull it over because he had time to really work on that single chapter until he got another chapter. And uh, that was a condition, and it was very anti-communist, but he was such an important person that they needed to adhere to it, and they did. And I think, you know, it's, it's that thing... That thing that's natural to people in Poland, Slovakia, countries like that, who continue to fight for the faith back when the times were communism, that has led those countries to be at the forefront of the religious freedoms revolution that we see now, when we see that the West has given up on these principles and has sold shop, in a sense, to the idols of sexuality and such, that those in Eastern and Central Europe are just beginning the fight because they've seen where this is heading and they fought long and hard to get away from regimes that took away those freedoms and, and try to take away their faith. And Roger, I know that certainly in the old East Germany, the churches in the city of Leipzig that did so much to peacefully oppose communism and, and contributed directly to the ending of the Berlin Wall and the, the Soviet bloc. For yourself, Roger, personally, was it the, the state communist opposition to Christianity that led you to being so interested in what it was that they were so opposed to in the first place in your life? In my life, personally, it was missionary activity. It was um, seeing the social gospel at work. I had gone to the Amazon several times to spread the gospel with close friends from YWAM, Youth with a Mission, and saw the interaction with the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church had set up shop there and were delivering services to the poor and, and medical services. And it was just this connection that I, I thought between the churches, one was delivering the gospel, one was delivering the social services, and that we needed a more coherent interdenominational setup where everyone was providing for not just sharing the gospel, but then following up as Paul did in his letters. He would found a church, but he'd always go back and take care of the church. And I thought that was necessary. And I think that's where I had my first taste of social justice and uh, realized that if I wanted to become a lawyer, it, it had to be a vocational work, that it had to be something where I was doing something for the greater glory of God and for kingdom building. And therefore, Roger, I'm presuming, therefore, that your concerns for justice stemming from your Christian faith were perhaps maybe the biggest factor in you deciding to go into studying law, because presumably you were so concerned for justice for the poor, for the little person. I think it was part of that. It was certainly for the poor, for the sick. That's where my original missionary activity worked itself out. Before law school, I took a, a detour in Nashville, Tennessee at Vanderbilt University and did a master's degree in theology and had seen that theology was sick unto the point of death in the, in the secular academies. And that really was it. It was that combination of having been out in the missions field, wanting to do law and seeing how awful it had gotten in the, in the university culture and seeing that this very quickly was going to be seeping into the mainstream culture and, and the things that back in the day were being spoken about in women's studies and various faculties, postmodernism and all those concepts, which we at the time thought was never going to happen, that society wasn't going to so radically shift to believe these principles has come to fruition. Basically, if, if those professors had put together a dream manifesto, we're living it right now. And I think the lawyers and the policy people at Christian Concern are all invested here precisely because of that. We see that we need to be cultural revolutionaries for Christ. This culture is being lost. And if good people don't stand up for it, then who will? 
Roger, I know what you mean. I studied theology in Chester and I did have one university lecturer who said to me that if I believed the Gospel of John, he would fell me straight away. So I do know some of your concerns. In fact, this one particular lecturer also made it his lifetime's work to try and disprove the fact that Christians in any way in the United Kingdom were persecuted or faced any sort of opposition. But in your case, you have seen the complete opposite. You have seen Christians facing opposition, as I have for my faith. Can you tell me perhaps maybe some of the early examples of where some of these things sadly were coming to fruition, where Christians were facing opposition, Christian values were really coming up against opposition? First of all, I'll preface that question by saying that what we have lost in the society, what society in general has lost, is the sense of what a positive impact Christianity has made on society. The fact that Christian families, their children, are giving more to charity, are graduating at a higher rate, are staying in their jobs longer, are not using drugs, all of these positive things about Christian family life churches, setting up drug counseling, homeless shelters, the Christianity has brought hospitals and universities and high schools and education in general to the UK. That's all been forgotten. And that's a sad thing. And once you forget about the positive impact, it's much easier to, to draw a straw man of typical Christian, which is what's been done. I think the left, secular forces, humanists, um, those from the LGBT agenda have set up a straw man of the Christian as someone who's bigoted and intolerant And because of that, pop culture is bought into that. And so that is why we see courts and legislature running roughshod on Christian rights, because the feeling is, well, I mean, if these Christians are intolerant and they don't give anything to society, why wouldn't we take away their rights? And and so, yes, we've seen here at Christian Legal Center alone cases where Christian foster parents have not been allowed to foster children because of their views on sexual orientation. We've seen people lose their jobs because of their faith. We've seen service providers being forced to go against their conscience or or lose their job, university students being thrown out of their program for holding biblical views on marriage and sexuality. So we have recreated the Spanish Inquisition, except it's secular society who is bringing to task Christians, that if you don't hold the proper worldview, you can lose your job, be fined, even go to jail. I know what you mean, Roger. In the United Kingdom, our legal system over many centuries, still today, is based upon the teaching of the Bible. Our democracy, in effect, is enshrined in law along Christian lines. Going back to the year 1688 with the Union of Great Britain, that was actually a nation dedicated to the glory of Jesus Christ. But yes, some of those values have been, shall we say, opposed in more recent times, and for myself as a civil servant many years ago, I can remember one of the top managers coming up to me quietly late at night when I was still working at my desk and suddenly I realised he was standing over me, bearing down at me. And it was like, oh, hello, Graham. And he just bellowed at me. He said, you're a Christian, aren't you? And I said, yes. Who told you that? I just know, he replied. And I said, well, Graham, how do you know? And he said, because you believe in absolute truth. And I replied, yes, that's right. How can you? There's no such thing as absolute truth. And I think today in British society, as well as Christian values being opposed, I think all our concepts of truth and right and wrong are being undermined because everything's now suddenly relative. If it's true for you, then it must be true. And as long as you don't hurt anybody else, then it's all right. We must be tolerant. Is tolerance the new idol in society today? Tolerance is the new idol. And I, I think Boris Johnson summed it up best when he said that here in the United Kingdom, we don't tolerate intolerance. We have created this false shrine where tolerance is defined under their terms, because certainly they don't believe in tolerance for the Christian worldview. This is not just a problem for today. I'm, I'm Kierkegaard quipped that there was no more Christians in Christendom. I think the erosion has been happening for a long time. And um, what's most dangerous about today is that too many people in the church are trying trying to redefine scripture and making excuses for why certain passages in scripture are no longer applicable. And when we become the arbiters of what the Bible says, then we are not Christians. We are commentators, and we're replacing God with our personal views. And I think as Christians, we need to stand up, not just the lawyers, but the churches, the megachurches particularly, and defend the truth strongly and boldly.
And of course, Roger, defending the truth is a costly business. Can you tell me a little bit more about your involvement with the Christian Legal Centre and also some of the cases that you've been involved with yourself? Well, I think one case that jumps into my mind, um, just speaking of costs, because it's so fresh, is the case of Ashling Hubert, a young lady who is a campaigner on, on behalf of life, who saw the plight of the unborn girl child, the fact that gendercide is happening here in the United Kingdom, and she saw that the, the prosecutor office wasn't willing to bring a case. It was making the protections for the unborn in the Abortion Act dead letter law, which means basically meaningless, and that she as a private citizen needed to stand up and say something. Now, there was recorded video evidence of two doctors willfully breaking the law. And the fact that the prosecutors didn't bring that case says a lot about the temperature at the government level towards the unborn child. Um, The fact that she was given a cost order close to £50,000 says a lot about the attitude of the judiciary towards people like Ashling. That case in particular had a chilling effect not only on people who are pro-life, but on the right of every citizen to bring a private prosecution. That is one example. We have the case of Barry Trehorn, who is a a Baptist minister who was working at a prison for sex offenders who wanted to share a message during a service. Now, you have to remember this is a voluntary service where the prisoners could come or not come. So those who were there, they were there voluntarily, and he shared a message from Corinthians on sexual purity and mentioned the various sins, including adultery and fornication, and one of those was homosexual behavior. And one of the prisoners complained, and basically Barry was pushed out of his job thereafter. So when a Baptist minister can't speak from the pulpit in a prison with sexual offenders on sexual purity, we have gone too far astray. In the case of Ashleen, she was basically punished by the courts for obtaining video evidence of breaking the law. Roger, do you feel that in your work you're encountering more and more instances of where life isn't being valued by society, but where rights are being valued more? Yes, and absolutely, there's no question. Just for example, the GPC, which is one of the pharmaceutical regulators, is now having a consultation. They want to change their guidance to say that a pharmacist can no longer conscientiously object to providing certain medications. So that is a very, very serious instance where you are taking a fundamental right away from pharmacists. I don't know what the end goal of that is. The suggestion is that they want to provide access to anyone who wants any pharmaceutical of their choice at any time. And that's silly because the vast majority of people who obtain medical services or pharmaceutical services want a service provider who shares their views. So if you're an elderly or disabled patient, for example, you don't want to go to a pharmacy where you know that they're complicit in providing drugs for euthanasia and assisted suicide. If you're pro-life or pregnant, you don't want to go to a provider which is radically pro-abortion. So first, they're closing the marketplace to Christian providers. And second, they're closing the marketplace to those who seek services from Christian providers. That's one example. We see consistently the, the parliament having legislation introduced for assisted suicide and euthanasia. We see any attempt like that of Ashling to protect the unborn child being punished under the law. We see now three-parent embryos. This is the only country in the world that has allowed that science because it's such dodgy science that the risks of tumorous cancer passing down even worse genetic conditions through the line, none of that's been studied. There just seems to be this lust for, I don't know what what you would call it, um, sin perhaps, that that is part of that sector of society. Roger, to me, it's the inconsistency of the law in that if you were to go to a supermarket around the corner from here, and if you were to try and buy, I think, more than two or three packets of Disprin, the person in the checkout would stop you because they feel that they could be aiding and abetting and you attempting suicide. The law can try and protect life in that sense, but elsewhere, pharmacists have to dispense certain types of medicine that can bring about the ending of life. To me, I think it's where the inconsistencies are that I think we see possibly a secular agenda, a politically correct agenda that seems to be very much in favour of human rights, but again, not human life. Is this the context, the area where Christian concern is actively campaigning? That's certainly one of the areas that we're actively campaigning. And I think to your point, even just in the pharmacy setting, there are any number of medications or or treatments that a pharmacist could oppose. Hormones for gender reassignment would be one of them. Abortifacients, those pills that can bring an end to a pregnancy. 
So there are a lot of situations where good, honest Christian people would find a reason to not want to participate in that. And in the medical scenario as well. I mean, if you close the medical field, for example, to someone who's pro-life, you could be excluding from the profession the next best prenatal surgeon because folks get into that profession because they love life. So yes, we're fighting on behalf of Christians to be able to enter any profession they wish. And that is the law currently, and we will fight so long as it remains the law. You're listening to Flame Radio on 1521 Medium Wave and online. My name is John Cheek. With me is Roger Kiska of the Christian Legal Centre. We're discussing these issues, Roger, and there are many people of Jewish faith, of Islamic faith, who would share the views and the beliefs of many Christians. And if they were to speak up and speak out... I think it's true to say that society would hear what they have to say and make exceptions for Jews or Muslims, I believe. But if it was Christians who were speaking out, Christians wouldn't be given the benefit of the doubt. I will answer that simply by saying that Christians make an easy target. And perhaps that's why they're targeted more than other religious groups. Muslims certainly are targeted in their own way. I think it in a much more subtle way with regard to education and things. And unfortunately, the knockoff effect on that is whether it be Ofsted or the Department of Education, then goes after Christian schools as well to make it seem more even-handed. So Christians are then on the back end of that as well. But I do think that there are faithful Jews and faithful Muslims who do stick up for principles of life. But disproportionately, it is true that Christians on the legal side of things are having far more cases brought against them. And this has been recognized by both the European Parliament and OSCE and other international intergovernmental organizations who have defined this trend and called it intolerance and discrimination against Christians. So that, that is a recognized trend in Europe now. Do you see a time in the future where perhaps maybe the work of the Christian Legal Center and other organizations may be so effective that perhaps Christians don't undergo opposition again? Well, to be honest, uh, I think our goal here is to make ourselves no longer needed. So we'd love to drive ourselves out of business, and we will continue at the legislative front and on the legal front. You know, the issue with sin is that it's something that's not static, it changes. So when I started my career, I was doing a lot of church autonomy cases. Now it's euthanasia, it's transgender issues, it's same-sex marriage and service providers being forced to perform services for same-sex weddings. Never imagined that 10 years ago. And so the landscape keeps on changing. And I don't think the British humanists or any of those organizations are going away anytime soon. So unfortunately, I think we're in it for the long haul. We are making gains every day, every case. And uh, we will continue, I'm confident, to win cases and, and win precedents that will make it a more livable place in the United Kingdom for Christians. Roger, one final question. If things continue in this society, in this country, the way they've been going for the last 15 years, the likelihood is that Christians, particularly in the workplace but elsewhere, will continue to face opposition, probably outright persecution eventually. Do you feel, however, that if this was to be the case, that actually the church might flourish as a result, like it has done in China and other parts of the world, that actually coming under persecution might be a blessing in disguise for the church in this country, that we might really have to get our act together, speak up and speak out as a result? I do think that's the case. I, I honestly do. One of the saddest things that I've encountered here in the UK and in the West in general, it was in the United States and Canada as well when I lived there, was the fact that um, we have become slaves to comfort, that we don't stand up for principle. We don't stand up for what we believe because we're afraid of offending someone, because we're afraid of losing our cushy position. And so funny to think of it, as long and as hard as we fought two world wars to have the freedoms we have in this country... That it's comfort that has become our biggest existential threat. People enjoy being comfortable. And I, I pray to God that it's not the case, that they'll have to f suffer through more persecution. But I think iron sharpens iron. And you're right that in countries where persecution is present, the church is growing. And um, we'll continue doing what we do at the Christian Legal Center to ensure persecution doesn't come. Yeah, grace is an amazing thing. And we need to learn to be more sacrificial, I think, when it comes with, with our faith. Learn to be more sacrificial with regards to our faith. My name is John Sheik. You're listening to Flame Radio on 1521 Medium Wave. Roger Kiska of the Christian Legal Center. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you.
There's a man I meet Walks up our street He's a worker for the council Has been 20 years And he takes no lip of nobody And litter off the gutter Puts it in the back And never thinks to mutter And he packs his lunch in the sunless back The children call him boogie He never lets off But I know cause he once told me He let me know a secret About the money in his kitty He's gonna buy a dinghy Gonna call her Dignity And I'll sail her up the west coast Through villages and towns I'll be on my holidays They'll be doing the rounds They'll ask me how I got her I'll say I saved my money I say isn't she pretty That she calls And I'm telling this story in a faraway sea, sipping down racket and reading me our keys. And I'm thinking about home and all that that means, and a place in the winter for dinner. Yes, we're here at the offices of the Christian Legal Centre here in London, and with me now is a caseworker for the Legal Centre, Libby Powell. And Libby, I think you, you certainly spend a lot of time on cases which seem to relate to medical ethics. For the sake of the listeners, what sort of subject areas does the overall banner medical ethics cover, please? Medical ethics covers a wide range of situations, so from the beginning of life, looking at abortion, and even further back, looking to how a human being is is created, right the way through to end of life, decisions on assisted suicide and euthanasia, which are very topical, and we often run campaigns and run cases which seek to protect the lives of the most vulnerable people at these two stages of life, and to show that human beings are sacred and deserve a special place in our society, because we find, unfortunately, that the laws and the policies which are either in place or are being campaigned for simply disregard God's plan for the sacredness and specialness of human life. So it's our job to try and defend that. Here's a leading question, Libby. If a baby which has almost come to term was found to be even with something like a club foot or a cleft palate, just the day before they were due to be born, the parents have the right to demand an abortion of that baby? Well, under the 1967 Abortion Act, there is provision for a baby with, for example, a cleft palate or a club foot or some other minor disability to be aborted up to term. Now, the woman who is requesting that does have to have permission from two doctors and obviously undergo examinations, etc. But what we found with other grounds of abortion is that those safeguards are not in place. So whether they're in place for a 39-week-old baby is an interesting question. I suspect that many rules and policies are, are broken behind closed doors. But the real issue is that we are saying that a certain class of people, disabled people, can be killed up until the moment of their birth. And in fact, in relation to that, Lord Shinquin is pushing for an amendment to the law so that that class of people, disabled people in the womb, 
are treated exactly the same as every other baby in the womb and that there is no longer abortion up to 40 weeks for those people. So we're waiting to see whether that goes through and we pray that it will. Certainly, Libby, I know that there's lots of people with disabilities who are very, very opposed to abortion because they realise that society regards people with disabilities today as being second-class citizens, and that goes for the unborn child. In relation to the bill that I just mentioned, we are aware of charities who we will work closely with. We pray that that law does get passed. Historically, our work has covered the whole gamut of abortion, from being able to abort up to 24 weeks and then including the abortions after that for disabled babies in the womb. For us, the issue is it's very important that disabled babies in the womb are protected, but the issue is far wider. Since 1967, 8 million babies have lost their lives because of our abortion laws. That's a huge concern, especially as we come up to the 50th anniversary of the passing of the Act in October this year. And we want people to understand, regardless of whether they have faith, that human life is precious from the moment of conception. And we'll do all that we can to protect that, whether that's policy change, whether that's law change, whether that's bringing cases like Ashling Hubert's, anything that seeks to highlight what abortion is and why it's so detrimental, not only to women and their children, obviously, but to their family and to society at large. Libby, do you think society in the UK today at the moment has made so much of human rights that actually human rights is more greatly valued than human life in Britain and the West today? I think unfortunately that is true and the rhetoric that we've seen over the past few decades, especially with abortion, is that it's a woman's right to choose. We don't really hear about the baby's competing rights to have life, to live. live. And in fact, it could even take it to a women's rights issue. If you are pregnant with a baby girl, how do you decide whose women's rights are more important? So really, as you say, this concept of human rights, which is really hazy in some people's minds, has served to put competing rights against each other, which should never be the case, particularly when human life is concerned. And Libby, I'm sure I don't need to teach you the facts of life or sex education, but surely, apart from in the cases where the woman has been raped, surely the woman has exercised her right to choose when, in effect, she has fallen pregnant. Surely she has made her choice then, hasn't she? Absolutely. We all have choices to make. We're all grown-ups. And in most of these cases, unfortunately, abortion acts as a contraceptive. And a woman, 98% of the time, could get an abortion for social reasons. It's inconvenient. This really devalues human life, really devalues what society says about human life and how precious we think it is. And so it's no surprise when we see doctors and other professionals coming out with papers which say, well, if we can kill a baby up till birth, why can't we kill it straight after it's been born if it's not really wanted? That is hugely concerning, but it's what happens when we cross the line and say human life is no longer sacred from the moment of conception. If we go back to the Bible and back to Old Testament times, the thing which seemed to evoke the wrath of God, perhaps maybe more than just about anything else, was the pagan practice of the sacrificing one of their own children on an altar to pagan gods. Would you agree with me, Libby, that today we see in British society the sacrifice of children to pagan gods, secular gods, on modern-day altars in Great Britain today? Sadly, I do agree with you. And We have the god of human rights, as you mentioned before. We have the god of my choice, what's right for me. And although these aren't physical statues, they are certainly huge altars in people's lives. We're all guilty of serving our own idols, but these idols are now incorporated in the case of the Abortion Act have been since 1967 in a woman's right to choose and looking at other issues regarding life it all seems to focus around the people who are alive making choices for the people who are yet to exist or who exist or still want to exist but haven't got the ability to say what they want that's talking about end of life decisions and as a bloke i'm firmly of the opinion that abortion partly exists to let men off the hook and to avoid their responsibilities sometimes, but that's just my opinion. Libby, just very quickly moving on to the other end of life and subjects like euthanasia, assisted suicide. Assisted suicide is where a doctor would simply assist a patient to end their own lives, and it also applies to members of that patient's family helping them to end their own lives, and the push recently has been for doctors and for members of a patient's family, to be able to do that and escape prosecution by the CPS. 
and we have seen many attempts to loosen the law on assisted suicide and euthanasia because once again it's the altar of human choice what's best for me the scary thing for us especially as christians is that these people who want to end their lives are going to face god so our response as well as saying let's protect human life because of its value is to say people need to be ready to face god If they're taking decisions about ending their life into their own hands or putting them in the hands of a doctor or a member of their family, that's simply the wrong response. Libby, if I may be so bold as to share a little bit of recent experience in my own case, my wife has had an elderly relative go into a nursing home and the family were alarmed to discover not long afterwards that on all her medical notes was the term DNR, do not resuscitate, without there being any consultation with the individual in question or their family. Have you here at the Christian Legal Centre had much dealings with cases where the wishes of the individual and their families have been ridden roughshod over for the sake of the rights of a home or a doctor to not have to be troubled by having do not resuscitate on somebody's medical notes? Yes, we have dealt with many inquiries about those issues and it's disgusting, frankly, that those sorts of situations should even arise. Connected to that, we've been dealing very closely with a couple who the wife is disabled and she has been campaigning against the government's own policy, which has been loosened to allow doctors who help people to die to escape prosecution altogether. So it is really a very live issue. So from DNRs to Liverpool Care Pathway concerns to basically treating old people as though they no longer deserve the care that younger people perhaps would get to going to the government's own prosecution policy on those who who want to help to end other people's lives. There are many, many issues where life is in real danger at the hands of our lawmakers and our policymakers, and we have to stand against those attempts, which so far have been unsuccessful, praise God, because life is important up till the moment that God decides that it's time for it to end. Libby, as being a Merseyside radio station, yes, we are aware of how the Liverpool Care Pathway was eventually abused where legislation has been passed in other parts of the world, and I'm thinking namely the country of Holland and the US state of Oregon, that has made things like euthanasia and assisted suicide legal. They've suddenly seen a huge increase in very able-bodied, able-minded senior citizens just being bumped off. And as somebody who has plenty of experience over many years of going to visit the elderly in nursing homes, I've seen how in this country younger relatives have been only too happy to stick an elderly relative in a nursing home to get rid of them. If things like euthanasia and assisted suicide were made law in the UK, they wouldn't just be dumped in a home and forgotten about they would be bumped off. Well, that's the huge danger with any sort of law which says that we can dispose of our most vulnerable people in our society. And not just our elderly people, our disabled people, our people who perhaps don't make the grade as we set the grade. And so really, that's why it's so important to stand against these laws. And it's not just a Christian issue. Anyone who thinks that life is important and valuable, anyone who believes that palliative care is an option for people in great pain, which the UK are world leaders in, we need to be promoting all those things as well as standing against laws which seek to devalue life because the older people particularly in our generation they've gone before us just think of all they've done for us to say that we can just dispose of them just like that and to say that there's an economic reason behind it which is what some people would say it's frankly at least a disservice to those who've gone before us and again what does it say to society about how we treat our most vulnerable members And on that note, Libby, if anybody listening to this was to have concerns about a particular case known to them or their suspicions regarding somebody or a group of people known to them, and they wanted to find out more information about Christian Legal Centre could do or advise, how would they go about perhaps maybe finding out more about what services you offer? Well, there's a number of ways. The best way is to look at our website, www.christianconcern.com. And there we have information about how you can contact us. There are contact forms on the website. You can send us an email or you can call us 020-3327-1120 and someone will certainly get back to you as soon as possible. Libby Powell of the Christian Legal Centre. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. To see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary. 
tried by sinful men, torn and beaten then, nailed to a cross of wood. This the power of the cross, Christ became sin for us took the blame bore the wrath we stand forgiven at the cross oh to see the pain written on your face Bearing the awesome weight of sin, every bitter thought, every evil deed, crowning your bloodstained brow. Is the power of the Okay, so my name is Tim Dieppe, and you're listening to Flame Radio. 1521 Medium Wave, and online, my name is John Cheek, and I find myself in the offices today of the Christian Legal Centre, stroke Christian Concern, with Tim Dieppe. And Tim, can you explain a little bit about the work of Christian Concern, specifically, first of all, please? Yeah, Christian Concern seeks to campaign in law, media, and politics for a Christian view 
of the world and a Christian perspective on various issues like family, life issues and Islam and various other issues, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, that sort of thing. My focus is in Islam and that's where I particularly sort of draw attention and, and write articles and speak about what's happening in this country in relation to Islam and the increasing influence that Islam is gaining and has gained in this country over the last few decades. Okay, Tim, does that increasing influence pose a threat to British society or to the church in this country? Or is it a good thing in your opinion? I think it is a challenge in terms of what Islam is seeking to achieve. Not This doesn't mean necessarily each individual Muslim, but nevertheless Islam as a system seeks to gain territory and gain influence and increase the influence of Sharia law all over the world and is looking to do that in Britain and has achieved a remarkable amount in terms of an extraordinary prevalence of Sharia finance, for example, here in the UK with something like six financial institutions dedicated to Islamic products and 20 offering financial products. And um, that's just one area. Then there's halal, where we are the biggest slaughter of halal meat in the whole of Europe, $2.6 billion industry here in the UK. And all those animals are slaughtered with a ritual prayer over them and money is paid for people for the Islamic nature of that that goes on. And then there are various other things like estimates of some 85 Sharia courts that are operating in this country as a sort of quasi-parallel legal system that are systematically discriminating against women in this country and increasing the influence of Sharia and encouraging people not to go to the police and the normal court system but to be adjudicated by the religious authorities in the local community. And that's basically setting up a community and a parallel system and a monoculture within a nation or a nation within a nation is a term that has been used that is basically seeking to undermine our system and seeking to create Sharia law groups or Sharia law enclaves and ultimately they want to see a Sharia law nation in this country and to that degree it is a threat. Tim, you specifically mentioned these Sharia courts. Is there much difference between Sharia courts and the punishments administered in mainland Britain? and vigilante squads and kneecappings from dissidents in Northern Ireland? Is there much difference? Yes, they actually do claim to operate within the law, under arbitration law, and therefore they claim to have a legal basis in, in terms of what they do. 90% of what they do is women coming seeking a divorce. As you may know, it's very easy for a man to obtain a divorce because the man just needs to say, I divorce you three times. Whereas for the woman, it's a lot more complicated. And the difficulty is that the woman comes to Sharia court and finds that according to Sharia law, a woman's voice is worth half that of a man's voice and finds that Sharia judges, some of them have said openly that a man should not be questioned why he beat his wife and that the Sharia policy is you should return to your husband or if you don't, you have to return the children to him. And this kind of pressure is put on them and they pay money to Sharia judges and all this sort of thing. And they are discriminated against and disadvantaged in this way. And what's happening here is a lot of the time they were married in a mosque under a Sharia Islamic marriage and they thought that that was a legal marriage, and actually it isn't. So what we have here is these women who are married in terms of their religion, but are not married in terms of law. Therefore, if they are divorced, they have no legal rights. If their husband dies, they have no legal rights and no financial claim or anything like that. So they're very disadvantaged relative to people in normal law and normal situation, and even more disadvantaged than women in Pakistan in this respect, who actually have to have their marriages registered in law and their divorces registered, and the Sharia courts have to recognise the divorces and that sort of thing. So women here have a harder time in this respect, at least, than some women in Pakistan do. Tim... Is it a truthful generalisation to say that there are some sections of Islam in this country, not all, but some sections, which are looking to make all of this a reality in the future, not in secret, but basically in public and in the eyes of the law, that all of this is allowed to be normal everyday life legally without any challenge or recompense? Certainly there are Muslim leaders, some of whom will openly say that they want Britain to be an Islamic nation and they expect to be able to achieve this in a few decades and that they want Sharia law and they think Sharia law is what the best system is for the country and they want to implement it in this country and some of them are very unashamed and very unabashed about saying that and very bold about saying it and I think that's a challenge. 
And I think that um, what we're not used to in this country is people being quite so assertive and quite so confident about their own beliefs and their own system. And actually, we as Christians have sometimes been a bit shy and a bit bashful about what we think. And we've sort of adopted this idea that we should privatize our faith and keep it at home and don't bring it into the public and don't bring it to the workplace. And some of these Muslims are not at all thinking in that way. They are very much open about Islam is a system that encompasses the whole of life and that has relevance in politics and relevance in the workplace and relevance everywhere and rules for all these things and these rules will be the best things. And actually, so what that should challenge us as Christians to do is to say, hang on a minute, actually, Christianity applies in the workplace and Christianity applies in politics too. And actually, Christian rules and Christian-based laws will be the best ones for this nation and will be far better than the discriminatory system that Sharia law would bring in this country. And I have to say as well, they also seem to be quite anti-Semitic in nature, as well as being anti-feminist. Do yourselves at Christian Concern find yourself actually making some interesting alliances with Jewish groups, with feminist groups who agree with you on some of these points? Yes, sometimes. I mean, anti-Semitism is a real problem and anti-Semitism is in the Quran, so it's rooted theologically in Islam's theology and system. I actually just recorded recently a programme for Revelation TV about abuse of Christians online by a group that actually was set up to monitor anti-Semitism online. And they were monitoring anti-Semitism online and found that Christians were getting abused as well online just for being Christians or for quoting the Bible or that sort of thing as well. And so this is an increasing trend and something which I'd like to collaborate more on in terms of exposing that kind of thing. Tim, what advice would you give to people who are Christians but feel perhaps maybe their rights, their faith is very gently actually coming under, shall we say, a bit of a push, a bit of a shove, particularly from an Islamic direction? Yeah, I would say connect with Christian Concern, follow us, um, get our free weekly emails to update you on what's happening in the nation about these various issues. And don't be shy, you know, stand up for your rights. Actually, you do have rights and protection in law. And if you're finding you don't have that in the workplace or wherever it is, come to us because we can probably help you. And, you know, we may be able to provide legal advice or take your case up in some form or other if you're being discriminated against for your faith. But you do have the right to manifest your faith in the workplace. And so if you're being asked to do something that goes against your conscience or you're sharing your faith with somebody in the work in an appropriate manner, you should have the right to do that and we'll help you stand up for those rights and protect those rights because they are important rights and we're very keen to protect them in the country. As you say that, Tim, I was remembering an incident that I was told about only just recently of a Roman Catholic lady who still works in a supermarket in the northwest of England and was complained about by a customer who happened to be a Muslim because she was wearing a crucifix round her neck. And he found it offensive and he uh, complained to the management of that supermarket who employed her and tried to get her the sack. If that is presently the experience of anybody listening to this, what right does that Christian have if somebody finds that their crucifix or their cross is offensive to them? We had a case like this a few years ago of a lady who wore a cross on her British Airways uniform and, and British Airways tried to prevent her from doing that and she'd worn it for many, many years and astonishingly that case had to go right the way to the European Court of Human Rights in order to, for her to obtain the right to do that. We had another case with a nurse of a similar nature about wearing a cross as a nurse. So you do have a right to wear a cross and um, somebody who takes offence at that does not really have a right to take offence at that, no, that sort of thing. It's totally appropriate and I think it's now recognised as sort of a Christian symbol astonishingly as it might seem lawyers argue that it was not a Christian symbol Tim, one final question. I once got into trouble a few years ago for actually being in a mosque and for asserting my belief that Jesus is God. And that imam got very angry with me. He stated that he believed that Jesus was or is a real person, but not God. Can you just briefly describe what is the Islamic view of the person of Jesus Christ and the Christian view of him, please? The Islamic view of Jesus actually does have some similarities with Christianity. They do believe in the virgin birth, actually. They do believe that Jesus performed lots of miracles, actually. And they even believe that Jesus will come again. But when it comes to the absolutely crucial point of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, they're absolutely adamant against that. And in the Quran, it explicitly says that Jesus did not die by a crucifixion. And they certainly don't believe he rose from the dead. And they certainly don't believe that he's divine in any way or that he's God. They just believe that he's 
sort of one of the prophets kind of thing. And that's the key difference there. And what I always want to say to Muslims and have said to Muslims when I sort of challenged them about, about the difference between Islam and Christianity is, have you compared Muhammad and Jesus? Because actually, when you look at those two, what have you got? You've got, actually, Jesus was born of a virgin and Muhammad wasn't, and they should agree with that. Jesus performed lots of miracles and Muhammad didn't, and they would agree with that as well. Jesus is coming again, Muhammad won't, they would agree with that. So surely Jesus is a bit better than Muhammad, for starters. And then you've got, actually, Muhammad discriminated against women and Jesus didn't. Actually, Muhammad killed lots of people and was quite a violent person and encouraged a lot of violence, and Jesus didn't. Jesus did the opposite, he healed people. Actually, Muhammad was quite an intolerant sort of person, whereas Jesus forgave people and loved people. And then, of course, Jesus rose from the dead and Muhammad's still dead. All right? So who would you rather follow? And that's the question I like to pose, and that's really the difficulty that Muslims face. I know who I'd like to follow and do. Tim Dieppe of Christian Concern, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. It's been great to be on the programme. We've closed the chat room door, but please tune in next time to Flame CCR on 1521 Medium Wave for more from Green Door Studios chat room. Green Door! We hope you enjoyed this program, which is under the copyright of Wirral Christian Media Limited. Details of the Flame CCR broadcasts and webcasts are on our website, www.flameradio.org. Thank you for listening. Flame.